Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. That youth level is key as well, working with Alejandro Ganacho last season at Manchester United. It was interesting because I had to get to know him initially. His English wasn't great. I, I, I had a few words in Spanish. We built up a bit of a connection. Uh, the coaches were brilliant with him. We, we had a clear development plan for him and, and he followed that. I'm Simon Austin from Training Ground Guru, and our guest on today's episode is Justin Cochran. Justin has been part of the first team setup at Brentford since the summer. Prior to this, he worked for Manchester United, Tottenham, and the Football Association, and is regarded as one of the best development coaches in the country. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Looking forward to this. Uh, and your title is first team coach. What exactly does that involve? Yeah, so my official title actually is head of coaching, but it's also first team coach. So I work alongside uh, the first team staff in, in helping us try to get three points every weekend, as well as the head of coaching role is supporting uh, the club in general with the development programme. So just creating a new development framework for the first team, the B team, and then the academy, which will open up gradually over the next few years. So is that development of players going from the academy to the first team or all players? Yeah, so at this present time, it's mainly that just aligning the B team and the first team a bit tight, more more tight. They, they've had success over the last few years, but that's part of my role, which is, which is what I'm experienced in, in developing young players. So I work every day with the first team, but also spend some time trying to put a framework together during this period that help will help Brentford going forward. So are you actually involved in the first team sessions? Would you be doing coaching there? Yeah, every day, every day. My, my main role is first team coach. So I'm with every day with the first team, uh, designing the sessions, supporting the sessions, delivering the sessions. And yes, yeah, so that's been the step up that I've enjoyed, Simon, after 14 years in, in youth development. Now I'm in the first team arena, but there's lots of similarities uh, across the board, especially at a club like Brentford. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, actually, because this is your first full-time role with a first team, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Have you found it very different? And like, in which ways have you found it different? That's uh, a good question. It, it's different, but it's the same. So it's different in terms of the intensity and the demands and the, the, the free points on the weekend mean everything. But in terms of the actual delivery aspect, it's, it's pretty similar. Group of players who are trying to improve, group of players who you want them to play together and united. And the experiences I've had previously have helped me with this because you're just working with, with, with players and young players even, you know, they might be early 20s, mid 20s, but it's still the same processes that I've used with, with players in, in academy setups. And I've written a little bit about this, but do you think clubs are looking now more for development coaches, even at first team level? It, it does seem that that's happening now. Yeah, well, I think that um, the, the quickest way to improve your current cohort of players is to make them better. I think there's a lot of top managers that have done that since the start of time. So, but I do think more clubs now are looking for coaches with development backgrounds. There's, more, there's a few more managers in the Premier League who have got experience of working in youth. And if you've got coaches in your in your coaching team who can develop individuals and have got a history of developing individuals, that's the quickest way to make gains. And with the with the with Brentford being a club that has a history of developing players, and then selling them on, 
uh, I think this is a for me it's a, it's a good fit and it's it's an idea of what this club are trying to do. And we had Chris Ramsey on one of our previous episodes, and he actually said you're perhaps the best developer in the country. <laughs> he said so that's quite some accolade. Oh yeah, no, Chris is. Chris is my biggest supporter and always has been. He, he's a mentor to me and he, he actually really supported me as I started coaching when I first joined Tottenham in 2009. So he always speaks highly of me and a lot of the time I'm <laughs> taken aback, but I'm just trying to help young people fulfil potential. That's what I like doing. That's what gives me the most fulfilment. And that's what I've done since I've uh, started coaching a long, long time ago, before 2009, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I suppose if Brentford were looking for that developer, though, you know, it's obvious why they did go to you with your background and your pedigree in that area. Yeah, I suppose it might be the same for Thomas Frank as well, because he's, he's, his background has been in development. He worked in, in, in Denmark, he worked with a national team, he worked at a smaller club, which produced players. So, yeah, I do think that my experience in, in improving players and helping players uh, become first-team players would have attracted the people at Brentford. We know that they're very innovative with their thinking and they've assembled a, a good team and a good staffing group as well and that staffing groups is, di as, is different people who have different skill sets which will help the, the main objective of the football club. Mm. And we've done quite a bit on Brentford on the website and we had Phil Giles the director of football on one of the previous episodes as well um, and it, it seems the club has been one of the most innovative over the years like you say. Um, have you found that from being on the inside? Yeah, I did because football nowadays, a lot of clubs, especially in first teams, where they once a first team manager comes in, he brings all his staff in and they cover all the positions. Whereas when I went into Brentford, it was clear that Thomas has uh, Brian Reamer, who, who he's known for a long time through, through Denmark. But then all the other staff are people that have been almost like club appointments that have been brought in with specific skill sets to help the club. And it's like a diverse group, diverse of thought thinking, diverse of ideas and, and a lot of difference between the people. But when we all when, we, when it's all put into the pot and we mix it together so far, it's worked out quite well. And I, I credit the club for doing that. And it's interesting for me because I'm working with some very, very good people and they've all got specific roles and they're fulfilling those roles. Mm. Uh, Manu, the goalkeeper coach, Bernardo, the set piece coach, is fantastic. Kevin O'Connor, who's been there since his career, is a, he's the glue at the football club. He's a fantastic coach and brilliant with the players. And Chris Haslam, who is one of the best I've come across in terms of performance. So you've got a, a unique set of people there, as, as well as the manager and the assistant, who are able to help the club move forward. Mm. And Brian Reamer, you mentioned that he was saying that he was a bit sceptical about the emphasis on set pieces when he came in. Um, but I think he was persuaded, you know, by the, the data. And then actually when he put it into practice, he saw how important set pieces were. So is that a big focus that you've seen? Yeah, I think the people at the club and everyone in football understand the importance of set pieces and we we, we spend time on it. We're, we're quite creative with our offensive set pieces and try to be very solid with our defensive set pieces. And um, Bernardo, who leads on that, he, he's, he's very creative and he, he's got a good way with the players and he's able to explain it and and put on sessions that help help the club with the offensive set piece. And we've seen that this season already. And I suppose with that remit of development again, we have really seen players develop within that first team. You know, like Ivan Tony, for example, who's very close to getting to the World Cup. Yeah, there's lots of players. I think before I came, there's players like Saeed Ben Rama, who, who was developed and sold on, and, and Oliver Oli Watkins. So they've they've had a history. And even before that, there's players that have gone from the B team and sold for big money. So I think for the last 
probably 10 years, Brentford have, have had a history of selling players on. There's there's many players, Mepham, Konza, these types of players that have played for for Brentford and then been sold on. So it's, it has a development environment and that, that's that's come from the ownership, the top, the top of the club. Yeah. And you've got a big history in development, as we said, in academy football. Well, what do you think of that B team system? Is that a good one? Yeah, it works for Brentford. It has worked for Brentford. Uh, the club would have had their reasons for doing that, I think, five and a half years ago. Um, but the B team now, they're, they're, there's some talented young players in there. There's some talented players that have made the step into the first team. There's some talented players that have gone out on loan. So it's almost like the equivalent of having an under-23s, but just it's just called the B team, and they design their own games programme, which allows them to be quite flexible. So, yeah, there's some good players there, some players that are, are being prepped for the first team. So it's working for Brentford. And that's always a massive debate, isn't it, about that step from like under-21s to senior football and the best way to do it. Um, and yeah. I was talking to Adam Underwood at Leeds and he wants a B team, you know, in a proper league. He thinks that's the way to go forward. Yeah, you could have, we could speak about this for an hour or two, you know, it, it is a debate that's going for. I think when I've got ideas that when a, when a player is ready to play uh, men's football, that he should that 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 development that you get from planning its men and planning games that are very that that means something. I think that's a good time for players to go and experience that. But at the same time, you have to be very careful because I experienced this at Tottenham. Is that what you don't want to do is send a player out on loan, they play no games and they come back worse. So it's that 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 fine balance of is it the right time for the player to go? Is he likely to get games? And is his training program that he gets at the club going to make sure that when he returns, he's closer to playing in the first team, not further away? And that's the balance you've got at Premier League level. It's very, very tight, and you have to be made make collaborative decisions across the coaching staff, across the youth development um staffing, and make make that right decision, and make sure it's the right club as well. Yeah, it's not, it's not easy to get right. Is it like about having a menu of choices then, depending on the player? So it might be loans, it might be under twenty-one football, you know, etc. Yeah, well, we had that when I was at Manchester United. That was the case. We had a number of players that 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 potentially could go out on loan, but we had to decide was it the right time for them? Could they benefit from more training? A tra a really tough training program. Could they be benefit from a gym program that's linked to the training program? Were they was them going out on loan to maybe League One? Was was that gonna make them further away from the first team? Would would the opportunities to train with the first team be of more of a benefit than going out on loan? And, and it's each the each player's different. Each player's different. You have to make that decision at the right time and, and plan it. And at Man United, we had a we had a clear plan over maybe an 18-month period of of what what would be likely development um, steps for the players at, at, at specific times of the year. And I was going to go right the way back, actually, to your playing career. Uh, so, when, yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about that, please, and what, what you learned from okay. that? Well, when, when, we, when I think about going back, I was actually a coach before I was a player. Oh, were you? Right. Because at age 17, I started a local team. I started a grassroots team uh, in the area that I grew up in with the players who couldn't get into the local team. So a friend of mine who owned the dry cleaners at the bottom of the road, he wanted to set up a team for his son who couldn't get into a team. And we we, we set up a team and I coached it for three years. So that was me while I was a scholar at, at, at Queen's Park Rangers. So once I was, a, I was a scholar, I was a professional at QPR, then got released. I had a year at non-league. And then I got signed at Hayes. Before it was Hayes and Yedin, then I got signed by Crow Alexandra. I had a good season in the Ryman Premier, I got signed by Crow Alexandra. 
and I had uh, three seasons there, which which were brilliant for me because I, it was a development club. The whole idea, it was like an academy, it was an extension of an academy. The whole idea was to develop the players that they had and try and sell them. But we were playing in the championship, so it's fantastic. At one stage, I was the oldest player in midfield, age 21. And when I look back at that crew experience, there were some fantastic coaches, some fantastic people who helped me develop as a player. Uh, once I left crew, I played for three or four more clubs over three or four years, but never really settled. I never really settled. I never really fully uh, enjoyed it. I probably wasn't as professional as I should have been. So age 27, I had the opportunity to go back to non-league, back to Hayes and Yedin in the conference and the opportunity for me to come back to London, which was great and start my coaching. So I played about 150 league games as a, as a professional. I also played for Antigua and Barbuda, which is the country where my father was born, which was a great experience, which added to my coaching, going out there and seeing playing football, international football. But age 27, I was playing in the conference, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, which was good, good level. And I also joined Tottenham Hotspur at that year after doing my B licence during the summer. So I had a good mixture of still playing football, but working under good people, uh, head coach of the under 11s back in 2009 while I was still playing. And that, that was my, my, that was how it first I started. So 17 was when I started coaching. Yeah. 27 wow. when I started, when I stopped playing perfect full time, went part time and then coached. Yeah, that's pretty amazing, actually, starting off when you were 17. Um, I remember, again, I'm mentioning all the old pods, but we had Rennie Moulinstein yeah. on and he was saying that's quite a common thing in Holland that you would coach a grassroots team when you're quite young, and he did that. Yeah. Um, so, did you benefit a lot from doing that? Oh, for sure. That was my introduction into coaching. It's funny when I see a few of the players I used to coach now. I'm 40. They're 37. These sorry, they're 30, 33. These guys. I was only seven years older than because it's an under tens team. Um, and yeah, that that gave my first experience of setting up a session, connecting with players, giving them some ideas, taking a team on the Sunday morning. In, in different parts of uh, North London. And it was, just, it, it was brilliant for me. My first love was, was coaching then. So even when I got released from QPR, I'd, I'd still carried on coaching. I still um, enjoyed that, that element. And I coached, uh, I did also some grassroots stuff for, for a company and set up a company where we went into schools and did coaching. So from a very early age, I, I, like I said to people before, I was a coach before I was a player. Right. And even when I was playing, I had an, I had an idea that I'd like to just, coach afterwards because I've got a lot of fulfillment from from coaching and and, and helping people improve playing football yeah that's interesting so it was always in your head when you were playing you'd pick little things up and think I'll use that later on I'll add that to my toolkit yeah I think one of the things Simon I've been pretty good at is is absorbing um so even when I was playing I, I was I listened to the coaches I I remember the training sessions I wrote a few down I, I was always interested in it because I'd been coaching before I'd started playing professionally. I worked for some good coaches, even in my short term. Uh, I, worked, I played for Russell Slade, who was excellent. Kenny Jacket had a period at, at Millwall with Kenny Jacket, I thought was, was, a, was a terrific coach, really concise with his language, his communication, very clear. Uh, Ian Holloway, the same. So I, I worked under some brilliant coaches I could pick up things from at, at a young age. And what was your thinking with setting up that team when you were 17? Was it your own coaching ambitions but was it also like helping the community as well yeah it just I grew up in Edmonton North London and these kids couldn't get in the team they weren't good enough so the friend of mine actually asked me because he knew I played and I was an apprentice would you coach him and I thought okay why not no I didn't have I wasn't planning to be a coach but I just thought why not so just 10 or 12 kids over the park initially okay then it grew 
and then we we managed to enter a league and then we coached every week on the on the on a, like a power league pitch it's just fantastic it, it's brilliant helping people so when you love football and you like helping young people coaching is is the perfect way to do that and that's how it started mm. It strikes me actually that we will have coaches who won't have had any experience of grassroots because they might have been players within the academy system and then they become coaches in the academy system. Do you think it's good to have that experience and get that experience? I think there's no substitute for doing the hours. And if you can have a variety of different coaching experiences with different people at different ages, different ability levels, uh, it would only benefit you. So I've had a lot of coaching hours. Even when I worked at Spurs, I worked six or seven days a week because I was playing and coaching and going in on my days because I didn't work during the day because I played non-league and I, and I was part-time I had the daytimes to myself so I managed to do quite a bit of coaching then but in answer to your question yes working with grassroots working with um, an adult team even just them coaching experiences really help you uh, develop your your skills when it comes to coaching and 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 you learn transferable skills as well, working across. So there's things I did in that, that grassroots team that I still do now with the, with senior players. So the, the skills you learn are transferable. And I think the academy system, the best academies is phenomenal, to be honest. From what I've seen, like the facilities, the standard of coaching, the education. Um, but then there is a big gap to grassroots. Um, so do you think there should be more investment in grassroots and also more of a link between the academies and the grassroots? Well, I can only probably speak for what I know. And uh, when I was at Tottenham, we did a lot of work with the local grassroots teams. We invited them in. They, I, did, I presented a few times. We worked with their players. I think our pre-academy team would, would organise tournaments during the half-term weeks. But I do understand there's a gap in the, gap in the knowledge. But not all grassroots players have ambitions of being professional players. I know a lot will say they want to, but I do think we need to make sure that people play football for them reasons, the right reasons, which is to have fun, to stay fit, to socialize, to make friends, to create memories, you know, them, them baseline things. And you can create, you can make difference to young people through football. And I think as soon as you start saying, okay, it's to get to here or it's to progress, you can take away from the element, from the, what football's really about, you know, to become a professional is so, so difficult. But could they, could they invest more in grassroots? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I don't know the actual levels of investment, but I do think that um, grassroots has suffered with the grassroots teams. Some teams have suffered in the pitches, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not, I don't have enough information to give you a real uh, pure answer. Something I've seen actually just with my own kids is again, the, parents spoiling it quite a lot to be honest shouting from the sidelines or coaches uh, bearing um and you don't really see that in academies do you they're no, no, no. it's clear i actually tweeted a little while ago about it because my son's in the grassroots team and i tweeted about basically so parents that are shipping their kids from pitch to pitch doing six or seven days a week of football and they say oh they enjoy it that's great but you have to balance it. And I think there's a lot of parents who have the idea that they want their kids to get signed by an academy. I got that in conversation that, you know, we're at this pre-academy, we're at this development centre, we're doing this, we're driving here, we're driving in there. And my, my tweet was just meant to say, you've just got to be careful about that when, when, you're, when, the, when you're, the idea of what you're doing is to 
become a professional. It doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. You have to make sure that the child is just enjoying their football. They have time to, to not be playing football, to relax and to do other things. And especially when they're very, very young, all through their youth, really. Um, but there seems to be a lot of this quest amongst grassroots players to I need to be a pro. I need to get a one-to-one -one coach. I need to do six sessions a week. I need to be doing sprint training. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, after working in it for 14 years, I'm, there'll be a player at 14 who, who we signed by Top Academy who just, just comes in from playing with his friends and not being in any organised football. So it's just that balance, I think, and young and parents need to be a bit careful about that. Have you seen like any common factors with the top players you've worked with, what they were doing at those like pre-academy ages? Well, yes and no. Um, I know what type of environment they were playing in once they joined the academy. And I probably could guess at what they were doing when they were very young, which is just enjoying playing football and scoring lots of goals and having fun and, and, and really enjoying it. But then there will be people that will say, well, my son did this amount of training and that. But I do think years ago, kids played more by themselves and made up their own games and they self-taught. They played in the playground. They played it with their friends locally. So they had lots of repetition of, they had lots of practice on, on what they wanted to do. Um, whereas now they go quite organised pretty soon. And moving on to Tottenham, uh, what were your impressions there going into a big academy for the first time? No, it was brilliant. Well, I worked, I had an interview with John McDermott and I got the job and then I worked closely with Chris Ramsey and it really changed the way I thought about football because up until then I thought we want to develop these players to win games and we want to beat whoever we play on the weekend and Chris really stripped me back and was just like, no, 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 we want to play the right style and we want to have the best players on the pitch. If we can play in our style and have some of the best players on the pitch, that's a good, that was a good predictor of future success. We wanted to develop all the individuals that we had in our team, regardless, um, based on the skill sets they have. And we wanted to play in that, that style. So whether we won on a weekend wasn't really, really important. Of course, the players wanted to win and we, we set out to score more goals in the opposition. But the focus really was, was on developing each player um, individually and being able to play in a team concept. So I, 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 my, my coaching reflected that. So it wasn't just about an, a phase of play or attack v defence. It was about real in, little games and duels and 1v1s and 2v2s and small-sided games and technical work and ball manipulation work. So that, that, that really was what underpinned the, the programme at Tottenham. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so I worked with the under-11s for a year, the under-12s, the under-14s for a year, the under-16s for five years, and then the under twenty three. So what Tottenham had was a clear way of how they were going to develop players and what type of players they were going to produce that would be able to, 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 to get a job in football, basically, ideally at the highest level. But if not, at another level, and if not football, that they would develop skills that will support them in their, in their journey of life. Mm. And they had a good um, record of getting players through the age groups into the first team, didn't they, at that time? Yeah, well, before John came, I don't think there'd been many players since Ledley King. But with the good work that John put in and, and, and players that were existing in the academy, there was a, a spell of lots of players um, making debuts and then getting into the first team squad and then being sold maybe and having careers elsewhere. And uh, John and Chris were instrumental in that and Tim Shearwood and Les Ferdinand uh, as well. So it, it was a really good time for Tottenham where they produced players and Harry Kane being one of them at that, that period of time, Ryan Mason, Andros Townsend. 
Uh, there's other players as well that are, are playing in, in, in the championship or abroad that also benefited from that programme. Yeah. And would Harry Kane have come through before you arrived? I'm trying to Yeah, before I arrived, but yeah. Chris and, and, and John were instrumental in, in, in his development. And I know Spurs are always very high in the productivity rankings we do, actually. So they are good at uh, getting players into pro football, even if it's elsewhere. Yeah, so it's a de- development programme. What John and Chris put in place, I think, in 2005 was, it was a development programme. And that meant that the coaches were developed, the players were developed, the staff was developed. The whole thing changed from how it had previously been run. And it, it meant that, in my opinion, that these players developed quicker and w- were ready to play men's football uh, due to the skills they had developed and, and the qualities they, 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 sh- they, sh- they showed as young players. Mm. And what was Chris like to work with? Uh, Chris is fantastic. He's, he's a developer in its purest form. He, he, he would do things that no other coach would do, you know, in terms of his, his thoughts, his ideas, his training sessions were fantastic. They were enjoyable. High demands on the players of, of technical execution, but a lot of fun, a lot of enjoyment, a lot of competition. And he had a way with the players. He did all the hours. He was there all the time. You know, he, he spent his a, a large chunk of his time helping other people improve. And I learned from Chris, and I saw his enthusiasm. He, he, I saw how the players responded to him. He, he how he built relationships with, with the players, and how they 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 trusted him. And he he was fantastic to work for and work under. And uh, I, I owe a lot of my career to the work that he did and, and the support he gave me. I've had people actually who've said to me that he is a very, very good coach in his own right as well. I know he's like a technical director now, but he yeah, can no. still yeah, take a good session. A coach. He could he could be a coach, he could be a manager, he could be a technical director. He, he can cover all bases. He's actually qualified to do all the, those things as well. You know, he's got two or three degrees and diplomas in a variety of different things. I think he's had every, he said to me, he's had every job in football. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Chris is, is, a, is a coach. That's, that's his main role, he's a coach and a coach developer and a, and a leader. Yeah. I suppose that makes a difference, doesn't it? If you can do the job as well that you're asking other people to do and you're evaluating. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've heard that about Dan Ashworth as well, actually, that he is, you know, still passionate about the coaching and can coach in his own right. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't have lots of dealing with Dan Ashworth. He was he he headed up the FA when I when I joined there. He was a good man and he was bright, good ideas. Um, but back to Chris and and John, they were real. John for his leadership really. He led the, the he led the he led the organization. He he put high demands on the players. He put high standards. He really shaped a lot of the young men. Um and and he knows football and he's worked at a high level with the national team previously at Watford. So it's very experienced. And between John and Chris, they really created the right environment for, for development to take place. And I learned a lot from that. And especially with that bit I mentioned before about it was more like individual over the team. So of course the team has his own idea. The team um, wants to win and you want to score more goals in your position, but it was really about helping these individuals develop and making them better. Mm. And how did that move come about in the first place? I didn't ask you about that, but yeah, how do you get a job at a, a big academy like that? At Tottenham? Yeah. I, I applied, I applied for a role. So I was doing my B licence and... They were looking for coaches and on my B licence was Kieran McKenna, uh, Jim Hicks and Paul Davis. I knew Kieran was a, was, a, was a professional at Spurs, but had an injury at the time and he was looking to move into coaching. And I said to Kieran, look, if there's any jobs at Tottenham, could you speak to John? Could you speak to him? Yeah, I said to Jim Hicks the same. So I think Jim and Kieran both spoke to John and said, there's a, there's a keen young coach who lives quite close to, to where we train and he's interested. I got an interview and yeah, that was how I got that job at Tottenham. 
And uh, 2018, you joined the FA uh, and the England yeah. youth team. So how did that one come about? There was Once again, there was a role available and I, I had a good job at Tottenham. I'd been there a long time and I just felt like I wanted something different. I wanted to see what else there was out there because I'd been coaching at Tottenham for nine seasons. And there was a role as a head coach and I applied for the role. And it was a thorough recruitment process of presentations at St. George's Park. I got down to the last two or three and had to go in for a day, which was 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 really thorough and really tough, but enjoyable at the same time. And I was confident as well. I felt confident because I'd done a lot. What they were asking for, I felt like I covered all the bases. Um, so in 2018, yeah, I, I, I got that job. But what actually happened was in 20, just, just before I applied for that, I just completed a degree in leadership and management because when... Uh, Whilst I was playing, I always studied, I always looked, Simon, to, to what I could learn and do a bit more. So after I got released, I went to college. When I got signed by a crew from non-league, I went to, to, to college in the evening and did a H&D in, in business management. Uh, so when I joined Tottenham in 2009 and I, I was there for four or five years, I had my first son. I thought, gosh, if they get rid of me, what am I going to do now? So I, I looked at doing a degree with Open University. So I'd study leadership and management and the way the work was, you relate it to the work you're in. So I related it to my job at Tottenham and the leadership angle because I was head of like 12 to 16, the youth development phase. And when I joined the FA and looked at that, the job description, I felt like I covered all the bases. I had an A license, I had done my youth awards, I had a degree, I'd worked for, for a long time in coaching, I'd played a bit. So I was really confident going into that process and looking forward to the next step. Mm -hmm. And I knew Steve Cooper as well from, our, from the coaching fraternity. And he spoke really highly of it. And I think he spoke well of me to, to Matt Crocker. So once I got offered the job, it was, it was, it was a great opportunity for me to, to learn more and spend some more time around good coaches. Mm. Has it helped your coaching a lot doing that degree? Yeah, it has, especially the leadership element and, um, yeah, and uh, working with people, understanding emotional intelligence, understanding self, being able to, so I think there's, I think coaching, so in my last year, I tried to do a lot of compartmentalizing. I'm trying to put things into compartments. Okay, how does this fit? And I, in my head, Simon, I think that coaching comes into two areas and it's content and connections and everything falls into that. So what you learn, all the hard stuff, all the tactics and systems and sessions and, and practices, and that falls into that, the content bucket. But then the connections bucket, is about building rapport, building trust, understanding people, understanding difference, working with difference, uh, communicating with players, with staff, with senior management, managing upwards, with stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. So I just felt like everything falls into that. And what the degree helped me do is understand that, that more about that soft skills, that interpersonal side that a lot of people miss. I mean, a lot of coaches who have all the knowledge, they know all the bits, they can tell you the ins and outs of formation, but they're unable to translate that to young players. And I think that's the bit that's really key for people. You need, you need both. Mm. Some people have got all the content and they struggle to connect. Other people can connect and then they lack content. So that, that's where I think that it's, it's important to understand both. And I think the leadership degree helped me understand more about being a leader and communicating and connecting and sharing ideas and working collaboratively, working with the MDT. And then when I joined the FA, I was like, well, this is your experience. This is it. Go now here. There you go. Everything you've learned, try and put it together. And I had free reign to a certain extent within the parameters that they expect 
to to set the environment how I wanted it, to coach how I wanted, to set the team up. So it was, it was really important time for me to develop uh, in three years at the FA. Is it fair to say that a lot of the coaching badges cover the content area, but maybe they don't cover the connection area? Yes, probably. But yeah, yeah, no, yes, it's true. The connection, if someone, people ask me, how would you develop that? I haven't got the, the perfect answer. I think my experience of living all over the England helped. Living in South Yorkshire, playing for Rotherham, living in South Cheshire, playing for Crewe, living in Somerset, playing for Yeovil. I just met lots of different people and I spoke to people and I understood different people. Um, working, studying helped when I was going to the colleges and, the, and meeting different people from different walks of life and being quite social. So I think developing that social side, developing that, being able to talk to people, being able to speak, um, obviously coaching from a very young age, I, I felt I had to develop that net to, of, of connecting with people. And then, yeah, as, a, as you do it more often and as you coach more, you, you, you learn how to, to connect better. And the job I have now, um, so I had to, well, it, I was thinking about it before I come on the podcast about the players I've worked with. And so understanding talent and understanding difference. So like Marcus Edwards, Noni Madueke, Alejandro Ganacho, I had to connect with them the same way how I'm trying to connect now with Brian Mbwema, Mikel Damsgaard and Keen Lewis Potter. So it's the same process in my head, but there's not, I couldn't say to you, you got to do this, this, this and this. It's about soft skills, about emotional intelligence, about understanding yourself. It's about... Uh, listen, good listening skills and, and finding ways to connect with people. And it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Do you try and learn a lot then from each different player you work with by watching them and maybe things you can find out from other people? Yeah, it's just, it's just being generally interested in them as human beings. It's the same and not just with the players, but I have to understand Thomas Frank and how he works and get to know him. And he he's getting to know me. And he, he probably the best example I've seen of... Well, him and probably Maurizio. Maurizio Pochettino is the best example of the content. And so they know their stuff. They know their stuff. They're well studied. They understand football. They know their tactics. They know their game plan. But they know how to get the best out of people. And Gareth as well, to be honest with you. Gareth is excellent. They know how to get the best out of people. So they've got the content element. Uh, Thomas Frank's outstanding with his details. Obviously, I'm up more close with him than I was with Maurizio. I was... I saw Mauricio from further away, but Thomas understands how to set up a team. He understands how to set up training sessions. But he's brilliant with the players. He's brilliant at getting the best out of the players. He's, you can see that the players are at, at their maximum each week in the, in the Premier League. And Mauricio Pochettino was the same. He came into Tottenham and he knew all his stuff. He could, he's a, a, a distinguished playing career. He'd worked at Southampton. He'd worked at Espanyol. He, he knew his stuff, but he was brilliant with the players. The young players, the older players, the senior players. He knew how to connect with them and he knew how to when they needed arm around the shoulder, when they needed a, a, a kick up the backside. Um, he, he was brilliant with them. And I think it's managing that uh, element at first team level and then finding a way to do that also with, at youth levels is key as well, working with Alejandro Ganacho last season at Manchester United. It was interesting because he I had to get to know him initially. His English wasn't great. I, I, I had a few words in Spanish. We built up a bit of a connection. Uh, the coaches were brilliant with him. We, we had a clear development plan for him and, and he followed that. It's gone quicker than I thought, but he, he's an example of, 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 of that understanding, connecting with the player, getting to know him, understanding him, and then having a bit of content. So we knew what he needed to get better at and then he worked hard at what he needed to get better at. And he listened, he listened to me, he listened to me, he listened to the other coaches 
about some key development traits that you see him doing now when he's playing for Man United. And it's fascinating for me to see because it, it further cements my ideas on, 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 on coaching when I see players like that excel and players like Marcus Edwards similar this year doing fantastic for sport in Lisbon. Yeah, I think uh, Ganacho has spoken, hasn't he, publicly about the help you gave him and how, how that developed him. Yeah, he's just he's he's a good he's a good kid. He, 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 with with young talented players, you have to under, get to understand them. You have to understand them. You have to understand that they're not all going to just follow the straight and narrow. And you've got to create boundaries for them, but allow them to explore those boundaries and then pull them back in when they need to be pulled back in. But you've got to let them express their talent. You, you, you can't be too rigid with them. And you've got to understand how they operate, what makes them tick, and then have the content, have the knowledge of the key development areas. And I talk about having priority development areas in young players, especially when they get to scholar level, like what's their priority development areas? A lot of the time you hear coaches and you say, oh, what do you need to get better at? And they just give you the, the whole list. It's like everything. I'm like, well, okay, I understand they've got to get better at everything. But if you had to nail two things they need to get better at, can we go after those two things for, for three months? Just those two things. Of course, we'll touch on other things, but how can we be laser focused on the things that are going to get him into the first team? That Manchester United, if you was going to get in as a winger at Manchester United, you had to, you had to challenge Anthony Alanga, Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford, and now they bought Anthony. So for, for Ganacho, he had to make sure that he's really good at what he needs, what he's good at. And what he's good at is he's excellent on transition. He makes darting runs in behind and, he, and he, he's quick and he can finish. So we had a clear development program for him that he was part of. He, he had insight into it. He, can, he, had, um, he contributed to it. And we spoke in detail about just a couple of areas. One of the areas actually was that we, we said about no chopping. I said to him, he used to go up on, he'd go down on his left foot and always want to come back into his right. And one of the things I said, look, in the next few games, let's just work on when you get in on your left foot, take the left foot shot. So before you chop, you've got to have two left foot strikes before you can come inside. And something so small like that made a difference to him. And then we laughed, go say to him, no chops. And then when you see him score for the first team in the Europa League and he takes it on his left foot, you, you're delighted. And he takes it on his left foot the other day again. So listen, that's not me or, or the coaches at Manchester United. That It's all him, but you know that you try to have an impact on the development side with him. A phrase I hear in football sometimes is ignore the noise. So I suppose he has to do that. Does he be careful who he listens to? Don't necessarily be on social media or listening to all the fans or, you know. Yeah, it's hard with these young players. Now, I think he's in, he's into two or three million followers. He's gone <laughs> over <laughs> in one year. It's just crazy. <laughs> but he's got he's got a quality that he's got that, that quality that that he's able to, he, he thrives in the big moments. He did it in the Youth Cup last year. I remember speaking to him before the game and he was like, it was taking ages to get ready and like the players were ready to warm up and he still was, didn't have his boots on. I said, Alejandro, come on, get ready, hurry up. You need to go out. He's like, don't worry, don't worry, coach. I scored two goals today. <laughs> <laughs> and then he went out and scored two goals, you know, and you're thinking, God, but he's, you know, but they're little things that, that make you laugh. They, 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 they remind you, and me and Travis would speak about it and be laughing about it because, these players, some of these these high talented players, they they can they can drive you up the wall at times, mm -hmm. but you got you need to be able to work with talent and work with difference. Not everyone's going to be the, the the model young player, and they are they are young players. They are young. They are 17, 18, 19. They're not adults. They don't think like adults all the time. So they shouldn't. They're gonna they're gonna be a bit challenging. They're gonna be a bit different. You've just got to be accepting of that. It's not accepting that, that anything goes, but you got to have an understanding that they're going to push the boundaries and you've got to know when to pull them back in.
And I suppose it helps a lot for a player and a coach when they know there will be first team opportunities if they do well enough. Like there is that light at the end of the tunnel. So you had that with Maurizio at Tottenham. You had that with Solskjaer. And it looks like with Eric Ten Hag now at Man United. Um, that, that does seem a crucial thing. Yeah, a pathway is key. So if there's a pathway to it, but the players have to contribute to that. So at Man United, for, for, since the start of time, they've had young players in, in, the, in the first team. It's, it's part of the fabric of the football club. But you still need to be good enough. And you still need to contribute to that. And a lot of players say, what's the plan for me? What's the plan? Well, at times I've said, I don't know what the plan is. The plan is if you score five goals for the youth team, you probably get released as an under 18. If you score 25 goals for the youth team, then you get a professional contract likely. And then you might get an opportunity to go on loan or go to 23s or go to first team. So the plan based on what the player delivers, but you can help them by creating some, 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 some development areas. And if they excel in those areas, and if they excel in the games and, that plan may come to fruition, but a pathway is clear. A pathway, sorry, a pathway is important for a club, for clubs to have for young players, but the players need to contribute to, to actually make it through. And I suppose that was there with the England youth teams as well, wasn't it? That you could progress through the yeah, age. That was, that was important. Team. Dan, Dan Ashworth and Matt Crocker were clear on that. And that was, yeah, it's it just very good leadership. It's very good leadership. They, they set a strategy from the beginning and it's it's bearing fruition now when you see some of the players playing at the World Cup. So I think any any organisation needs strategy. They need good leadership. They need a clear plan. Yeah, I think there was some research done actually, and the FA had seen that other countries that were successful, the players had played a lot together in the national youth teams as well and come through. Yeah, that was one of the things the FA about cap accumulation and giving them a variety of experiences when they're younger. And that was the same for the top academies by going on uh, tournaments abroad. That was one of my favourite parts of my job when I first started out. We travel Europe, we travel different parts of the world actually, with young players, and they played against South American opposition, Southern European opposition, Northern European opposition, Central American opposition, Asian opposition. So it gave these players a, a real taster of what playing against different players is like, different going to different cultures, seeing different styles of play. So when they make their debut, whether it's Premier League or Championship and up against the South American centre-forward, it's not their first time. And it seemed that England were doing innovative things at that time as well, like having the in and out of possession coaches. Do, do you yeah. think that works well? Um, yeah, I, I like that. At the time, you think, how's this going to work? And I, I worked with Omar Rizzo and Tom Curtis. But what it allowed the coaches to do was delve a little bit deeper into the details of how we wanted to play and, and some of the ideas on football. And when we met as a group of coaches, it was very interesting when the in-possession coaches presented on how their camps had been or things had been studying. It was really like a, it's like a university. It's like a university of learning, um, detailed in, in the way where coaches had clear division of responsibility. And, and since the start of time across footballs, people have had division of responsibility, but I felt that the in and out of possession coaches were allowed to look at things a little bit deeper and then feed into the, the team to, to help the team improve. It's still a model that we don't see that often, isn't it, really? And I've had some people like it, some people don't. It's quite interesting. You say that, but it, it, all it is is really is a division of responsibility. So I'm sure lots of managers over the years have had coaches who looked at out of possession or someone did set pieces or someone worked with the strikers or someone worked just defensively. So I don't think it's as, as brand new as everyone thinks or as I think it's always happened. I think just the label of in and out of possession coach has made it, has brought it to the, to the, the forefront. 
Um, I, I think what works is having a group of coaches like we've got at Brentford and having responsibilities to them coaches based on the skill sets that they have. So it might not be in all clubs in and out of position, but it might be you have a forwards coach or you have a defensive coach or you have someone who works or set pieces has always been, always been popular. So I think for coaches now, I, I do think there's areas where they can upskill themselves which will make them more likely to get a job in first team level if they've got specific expertise in an area or they've studied in an area. Yeah, I have often wondered that actually, whether it would help you get a job if you do specialise, if you say I'm a set piece coach or I'm an individual coach, you know. Yeah, maybe. I think when I was at Wimbledon, I, was, I spent some time at Wimbledon at the end of the, at the beginning of 2021. And Andy Parzo was there, who's was, was a set piece coach. I think he's at, at Swansea now. And he yeah. came in and he he, he worked uh, with the first team and he was very studious and he studied set pieces and he looked at how other people were doing it and he developed himself into into a, a restarts coach and I think he's gone on to to, to do quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I do think there's areas for, for specialism and even myself during lockdown, I thought I wanted to get better with centre forwards. I felt like that my content side could improve. So I, I, I spoke to Andy Carl, I spoke to a few different centre forwards and I got some information out of them and uh, I, I developed a few training sessions and I just upskilled myself on working with forwards um, and I felt like that benefited me so I think that's when for coaches they should always try and think okay where are you short on content meeting Paul McShane at Manchester United last year was fantastic for me because Mako's he's a, he's a battle battle scarred warrior who's had four or five hundred games um, and his details on defending were, were, were high, high level, higher than, higher than I'd heard before, especially the individual elements of defending the way he described it. So he helped me improve my content when it comes to working with centre-halves and defending the box in particular. So I think coaches should look for the content, of course, but then make sure they're able to digest the content to the, to the situation they're working in. Mm-hmm. And that, don't overcomplicate as well with grassroots young players, because I'm talking here from working at, at, at um, like a high level, if you're working with younger, if I'm working with under 11s, I'm not going to give them the Paul McShane details of defending in the box. I'll, I'll dilute it down. So I, I do think the younger players are the less information they, they need and more just short, sharp detail you know, within a game scenario. And I was just yeah. going to finish by asking about your own personal ambitions for the future. Yeah. Well, I'd like to take you back a bit on this, Simon, because... I know you have a lot of people that listen to this who, who are grassroots coaches and work with young players. And I must say that I never had, when I started coaching, I was never, I want to be a manager. I want to, I just really enjoyed where I was, what I was doing at that time. And I was just happy just to coach players and help them improve. So when I joined Tottenham, I was really happy just working in the academy. It was great. I didn't think, oh, now I want to be the Tottenham manager or the first team manager. I was just really, I was happy doing what I was doing. I think more coaches actually need, it's easy for me to say now, but more coaches should recognise, are they getting fulfilled from what they're doing now? So if you're helping players improve, if you're providing opportunities for players to make friends, if they're creating memories of having exercise and fun, that's great. It's not always about climbing the ladder. I think for academy coaches, as coaches who are in who take the 10s, they want to go to the 11s and go to 12s and the four, they want to work their way up. Where sometimes they could just be an expert at that level. Yeah. Um, it was only probably till when I joined the FA four years ago, 2018, yep. Yeah that I thought, oh, I might, wouldn't mind being a manager one day, so, or a first team coach. So my ambition 
now is that I won at some stage, I'd like to be a manager, but I'm really happy doing what I'm doing now as a, as a first team coach. So it's not always about strive. It's all something it's about doing this or achieving that. Sometimes it's about just being in happy in the, in, in what you're doing at the moment. But if you did ask me what one of my ambitions were, one of my ambitions would be to, to, to be a, a manager one day. Yeah. Fantastic. That's quite a big thing in life, isn't it? But quite hard just being in the moment, enjoy the moment. Don't always yeah. be in ahead. Yeah. Well, it's what fulfills you. So last year at Manchester United, it, everyone thinks my best moment was the Youth Cup. It was Youth Cup win, 76,000, 67,000 at Old Trafford was great. But one of the most fulfilling bits, one of the players who, who didn't have a contract for next year, helping him find another club. That was really fulfilling for me. And that comes down to probably one of my core values of just helping other people. So the fact that he got a two-year contract or a year-and-a-year option at a, at, a, at a good League One club was really fulfilling for me, as well as uh, the, 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 the Youth Cup win. So sometimes when I coach, I think when it comes down to the fulfilment, it's just helping people get better or getting that text message from a player saying, oh, thanks for that help, you really helped me. Or that's just as fulfilling as maybe winning something or getting three points um, against a big, against a big club. So it's just that balance of, of, of what is fulfillment for you as a coach. Oh, that's brilliant, Justin. Thank you. No problem. Cheers, Simon. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.